The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. invite you again to take your Bibles, and we're going to go to the book of Acts this morning, the book of Acts and chapter 13. Acts and chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse number 12. The Word of God says, Now there there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold... The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And we trust that God will have blessing to the reading of his word. What's our text talking about? It's talking about two men called and equipped and filled with the Spirit, going out, led by the Spirit of God, to be faithful to God in doing gospel ministry. God in His sovereign wisdom included in the book of Acts His unique and effective model for faithful gospel ministry. So what is the message of our text for today? It's how we can also, likewise, be faithful in our gospel ministry. There is a principle laid out, six principles laid out in the text. Actually, there's seven, but I didn't want to frighten you with a seven-point sermon, so I did a six-point sermon instead. But there's seven principles here, of which we'll look at six, for how we can do gospel ministry. Whether you and your friends are thinking about going out to do an evening of street evangelism, or you're planning a lifetime of ministry in a far-off land as an overseas missionary whether it's doing Sunday school or youth group or preaching ministry or leading Bible studies or raising children for Christ in the home, our ministering 
is a gospel ministry. It's all a gospel ministry. And these six principles will apply in every case. So first of all, I want you to notice that faithful gospel ministry is prioritized with prayer. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 13. Then when they had fasted and prayed, notice in verse number 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, there is a sense there that they were praying. And after receiving the Spirit's call to go into gospel ministry as missionaries, but before they packed up and departed under the Spirit's leading, they prayed. We're not told what they prayed about. Perhaps they prayed for wisdom, for direction. Perhaps they prayed for converts to Christ through their witness. Perhaps they prayed, because if you remember, they were the ones that were leading and teaching the church before this. Perhaps they prayed for the church's growth and protection while they were gone. We're not told, but we know they prayed. And the reality is, in every gospel ministry, prayer is always the priority. Prayer and ministry go hand in hand all through the book of Acts. In Acts 1 and verse 14, before the Spirit came on Pentecost morning, they were praying. In Acts 2.42, after Pentecost happened, the growing church were devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts 6 and verse 4, the apostles and elders of that small new church were not to be distracted with important, uh, necessary, practical needs Rather, they were to devote themselves to prayer and gospel or word ministry. In Acts 9 and verse 11, after Saul's conversion, encounter with the risen, glorified Christ, and before his beginning, his gospel ministry, he was praying. And so on, right through the book of Acts in the New Testament. In the practice of faithful gospel ministry, prayer is the priority. You want to hear something funny? or sort of funny, I was writing that and I realized I hadn't started praying for that part of my study and my sermon prep. I was like, prayer is a priority. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I stopped and prayed. And it was just like, hey, the Lord was saying it to me too. But prayer is a priority. Every pastor, preacher, missionary of the biographies I've read through whom God accomplished great things, they were first of all men and women of great prayer lives. Uh, Some of you know the name Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher from like the 20s up until I think he finished up in the very early 1980s. And his wife was asked about all the great preaching, he did all the stuff he wrote and did. And she said, first of all, you have to remember, my husband was first of all a man of prayer. And his grandchildren said they could see him and he would sit there in his chair and he would lean forward and put both his hands on his knees and he'd bend over and he would just begin to pray. And they knew in those moments not to disturb him. He was a man of prayer. No matter what stage we're in in our gospel ministry, a devotion to prayer must always be the priority. It precedes and follows every endeavor in gospel ministry. Our Lord Jesus Christ set the example of prayer before his ministry, during his ministry, at the close of his earthly ministry. And he now ever lives at God's right hand, interceding for us. What's he doing? He's still praying. Praying for us. 
Paul likewise set the example of a life devoted to continual prayer as he ministered and served in extreme circumstances. And in Colossians 4 and verse 2, he calls us to devote ourselves to prayer before they were to speak the gracious gospel words to the outsiders. If you want to know more about that, uh, Colossians 4 verse 2, just show up on Wednesday night because that's what we're doing for our Zoom Bible study is Colossians 4 and verse 2 in that, that passage. But listen... Like every other spiritual discipline, prayer requires something of us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your time is the same as everybody else's time. We were chatting about this, a couple of a friend of mine this week, about how much time we have. And I said, you know, the reality is we got 24-7, the same 24-7 everybody else in the world has got. And the reality is we'll never find time to take care of these sort of spiritual disciplines. The reality is we have to make time, which means we have to give something else up in order to spend time in prayer. A devotion to prayer requires some things of us. It requires us to recognize God's sovereignty over ministry, and so we must pray. God is sovereign over every ministry of this church elders, the deacons, the Sunday school, the youth group, the young adults, the the building, everything, the ladies' studies, the men's studies, the men's get-together. God is sovereign over every gospel ministry, and so we pray. It requires our devotion. It requires a humility in us in realizing that we are powerless without God's enabling and empowering grace, and so we must pray. But the other reality is also true that prayer changes us. God changes us as we pray. Prayer brings and places us in submission to God. I don't know what posture you take in prayer, but I find a funny thing, not funny, hilarious, but funny, interesting. I find that when I get down on my knees to pray, that my prayer changes. You say, why is that? I'm not entirely sure. But I do know that physical posture of absolute submission before God, it reinforces to me in my own mind at that moment who I am and to whom I'm speaking. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes into the image of Christ as he set the example for prayer and was a man given to prayer. So we are also to be men given to prayer. The gospel ministry, a faithful gospel ministry, which we all want. We all want to be a part of a faithful gospel ministry for the Lord's name and the glory of God's name. It begins, it's prioritized with prayer. Before they left to go on the mission field, they prayed. Secondly, a faithful gospel ministry is directed by the Spirit. Notice again in the text that's in front of us, in verse 2, the Holy Spirit separated Saul and Barnabas to his work. In verse 4, the Spirit sent them out into His work. And in verse 9, as Paul begins to deal with Elymas, the Spirit of God filled. In other words, the Spirit of God greatly increased His influence in Paul at that moment. The Spirit of God was directing and leading their ministry work. The Spirit of God directs gospel ministry. Scripture displays it for us all to see. To give you a few examples, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ was led by the Spirit in His earthly ministry. 
We saw it here in Acts 13. In Acts 15 and verse 28, the Spirit guided the church in their counsel and the decisions regarding the Gentile inclusion in the church. In Acts 16, verses 6 and 7, the Spirit forbade Paul and his friends to go to Asia and Bithynia. And in Acts 19, the Spirit empowered them to preach the gospel. Gospel ministry in all its forms, is under the direction and the leadership of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God also effects gospel ministry results. While the Father sovereignly chose His people to salvation and the Son accomplished our salvation on the cross and by His resurrection, the Spirit of God applies that salvation to us as we come to Christ. He's involved in the whole process. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 12, Peter reminds us that the gospel we heard was preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the gospel message that we proclaim is contained in the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. In John 16 and verse 8, Jesus told us that the Spirit of God convicts listeners regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. And without that conviction... There will be no salvation. If a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, is not convinced and convicted of their own sinfulness and their need of a Savior, they will not be saved. In John 16, in verse 3, Jesus told us that the Spirit of God guides the hearer into the truth of the gospel. In John 6, in verse 65, and Titus 3, verse 5, we read that the Spirit of God is the one who makes us alive, who regenerates us. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we read that the Spirit of God seals the believer as in Christ. The application of the salvation that Christ purchased for us is applied to us in the work of the Holy Spirit. So when we go out to preach and teach and hand out gospel tracts and put Bibles and letter boxes, we're pleading for the work of the Holy Spirit as the person picks up that gospel tract or opens that little gospel and begins to read that the Spirit of God opens their eyes, their minds, their hearts to understand the gospel and to respond to it. The Spirit of God empowers gospel ministry without His work is hopeless. The Spirit of God also gives the gifts for gospel ministry to the members of Christ's body in the local church. Listen, the work of a local church is a gospel ministry. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 11, the Spirit inspired Paul to write that each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and so on. And verse 11 says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. The Spirit of God gives the ministry gifts that He uses to build and shape and direct and move the church in its ministry to accomplish His desired outcome. The work of all faithful gospel ministry is under the directorship of the Spirit to the glory of God. 
And it's a spirit directing the gospel ministry requires something of us. It requires our submission to himself. It requires us to live under his continual influence. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What he means is, Christian, be living under the continual influence of the Holy Spirit. The question comes back to us right away. Are we living under that influence? Are we spending time in the Spirit of God's Word, the Word of a living God? Are we reading and we hearing what the Spirit is saying? Are we responding to it? I was in a situation just this week. I needed to seek someone's forgiveness for something. And uh, I was with them, and the time was, I just felt awkward. I could feel the Spirit of God just saying, Apologize. Apologize. And then he started to get, you know, pointed about it poked me and said, you need to apologize. And finally turned and I said, I need to apologize for the way I spoke to you. And we had a great conversation, the two of us, about something that was said. And the Spirit of God does that, takes the Word of God and applies it to all of us. Brother and sister in Christ, we want to see a gospel ministry that's faithful, that's effective. We want to see souls saved for the kingdom of God. We want to see this church grow. It requires all of us living under the influence, under the increasing influence of the Spirit of God. The question is, are we? And when we feel that provoking, that prodding, do we respond? Thirdly, a faithful gospel ministry is begun at home. Notice in the text, in verses 4 and 5, it says, "...they sailed to Cyprus." And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, Salamis is on the eastern shore of Cyprus at the mouth of the Padias River. And if you remember back to Acts chapter 4 and verse 36, where is Barnabas from? You want to hazard a guess? Cyprus. Yeah, he's a a Cyprian, right? Uh, He's from Cyprus. And so he was taken back by the leading of the Holy Spirit back to his own hometown. Do you remember when Barnabas goes to collect Saul? Do you remember where Saul was ministering? This will take you back a couple of weeks. Back to 11. Tarsus. That's exactly right. Where was Paul born? Tarsus. You know what I find interesting? Paul begins his ministry after he's saved and he has little success. And he moves from one place to the next and then he goes away for a period of time, probably about 10 years. And he winds up in Tarsus, and he's ministering in Tarsus to the people there. And Barnabas goes and collects him. And when they leave Antioch to go and minister, where does the Spirit of God take them? Back to Barnabas' hometown. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the place to begin a faithful gospel ministry is not on the foreign mission fields. It's not behind the pulpit, nor is it in other local church ministries. It's in our own homes. Uh, Billy Graham, I went to the Billy Graham crusade in 1986, I think it was, in Vancouver. I don't agree with everything he said, but I do know this was a good piece of advice. He said to those who claimed to believe the gospel to go and tell their family and or two close friends what God had done for them. In other words, go to your home and friends first with the gospel. 
I was reminded this week in, in, in listening to a lecture online, every single pastor serves two churches. The first ministry is in their own homes and with their own families. The second ministry is wherever God has called them. Every elder and every shepherd serves two flocks. The first flock is in their own home with their own families. Why do you think Paul says that regarding elders, his children were not to be in rebellion against him? He was to be leading his family well. An elder serves the two flocks. The first is their own home. The second is wherever God called them. Every gospel missionary serves in two fields. The first field is in their own home with their own families. The second is to wherever field, whatever field God has called and sent them. And you know what? This requires something of us as well. Beginning a faithful gospel ministry at home among family requires humility with those who know us best. And boy, do they ever know us well, right? They've seen us in our best times, no, actually, they've seen us in our somewhat good times and in our worst moments, too. And ministering and leading in the home requires faithfulness and humility and prayerfulness, especially when we blow it, and we most certainly will. It begins at home. Fourthly, a gospel ministry is proclaiming the biblical gospel. If you notice the text in verse number 5, it says that they began to proclaim the word of God. And notice also in verse number 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't that sudden miracle of Elymas all of a sudden being blind that convinced him of the gospel. It was the teaching of the Lord. That's what convinced him of the gospel message. That sounds sort of obvious to say that we should proclaim the gospel in a gospel ministry. But if you look around and you see what's going on in some churches and what passes for a gospel message, you realize it's nowhere near as obvious as you might think. Sergius Paulus believed, having heard the teaching of the word of the Lord. Gospel ministry is the publication of the gospel. Gospel ministry is the teaching and teaching of the Bible's message, of which its content and subject and goal is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it absolutely clear what the only true content for gospel ministry is. It's the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 10, it talks about whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sinned? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What? Time out for a sec. Remember I said back at the beginning about worship? Hearing the word, seeing the word, praying the word, preaching the word. What's the one common thing? The word. Why is it the gospel ministry must include, it's the only content for gospel ministry, is the biblical gospel message. And our text makes it clear that it's the power of the gospel message proclaimed and taught by which men believe and are saved. 
The biblical message of the gospel is this, that God is holy and righteous and just and good, that God designed and created us to experience unhindered joy in Him as we glorify Him through obedience to Him and His Word. But we have all disobeyed God and failed to glorify Him. And God has justly and rightly condemned us to an eternal death because of our sin and disobedience to God. But God, but God in grace has sent Christ to be our Savior. Christ has come, truly God and truly man, the only unique Son of God, perfect in His obedience and righteousness. Christ who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Christ has suffered and tortured and crucifixion. He's died on a cross to placate and soothe God's wrath against you and I. Christ was raised from the dead, raised from death, displaying that He is the Son of God. And now Christ calls all men everywhere to turn away from committing sin, to trust Him fully to save them, and to obey God and follow Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning... You don't know what it really means to be saved. Come to Christ. Trust God that He is able to keep His promises. Come in obedience to Jesus' call. Come and find true rest for your sin-weary, sin-loaded soul. Come and seek the Lord diligently and you'll find Him. But you know what, brothers and sisters? Proclaiming a biblical gospel message requires something of us as well. Just as prayer requires something, and just as being in submission to the Spirit of God requires something, and beginning at home requires something, so does this. It requires faithfulness to the truth of the gospel. It requires a steadfastness not to turn to other means or other methods. It's faith in God that as we preach the confronting, unpopular, and divisive message of the gospel, that God will save sinners question is, will we hold fast to that gospel message? You want to fill a church full of people? Get rid of sin. Get rid of the blood. Get rid of death. Whoop it up as how to have a great life now. Whoop it up. You can fill this place full of people. People are looking for something like what they find on TV into the guise of a religious experience. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that's not salvation. Not at all. We preach the biblical message, and don't don't kid yourself, it's confronting, it's unpopular, and it's divisive. It will divide sinner from saint. People won't want to hear a message like that, but it's the only message that saves. It's a message that gives true hope and true joy and true life. Fifthly, and just uh, just passed by this one, gospel ministry is for training disciples. Notice in verse number four that they took, uh, sorry, not verse four. No, verse 5, sorry. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. 
We know from the story of the whole book of Acts that John goes with them. He lasts a little while, turns back, and then Barnabas takes him and trains him. If you go through the Bible and look at all the great ministers of the gospel, Moses had Joshua, Elijah had Elisha, uh, Jesus had his 12 disciples, Barnabas took John Mark, Paul took Silas and Timothy and Titus and Demas and Crescens and a few other guys with hard-to-pronounce names, and took them with them, and they went off, and they trained these young men as they went. And here, right at the very beginning, they're taking Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, with him to see him trained up. That requires something of us as well. It requires a faithfulness and a patience to train up men and women, as we go. We take them with us as part of that gospel ministry. There's so much more I want to say about that, but we're just going to leave it for sake of time. Sixthly, a gospel ministry is resisting opposition. I want to reread again verses 6 to 11, actually 6 to 12. Acts 13, beginning at verse 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was known, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and will not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed what he saw, sorry, when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Opposition comes whenever you go out with the gospel. They had arrived in Cyprus and began preaching the gospel. The news of their message had reached the Roman governor. And God had obviously begun to do a work in his heart. He began to experience the converting work of God because he desired to hear the word of the Lord. He summoned them because he wanted to hear the message. And whenever there is success, whenever there is a response that God brings to a faithful gospel ministry, there will also be an accompanying accompanying opposition to the gospel. Notice in verse 8, Elymas was firstly opposing them, Saul and Barnabas. Opposition will come in the form of personal attacks. An enemy of the faith, an unbeliever, stands against us attacking and opposing the ministers themselves. He opposed Barnabas and Saul. It may come in the form of mockery, a slander, or lies. It may come in the form of violent physical persecution. I got a text from somebody just about two weeks ago telling me they were down on two street corners talking to people about the gospel and about transgender and all that stuff, and they were getting assaulted because of their testament. They were, they were speaking the gospel in opposition to a sin in our society, and they experienced that persecution. It may come as ungodly laws are passed to hinder our worship and the practice of our faith in God. So why is prayer so essential in gospel ministry? 
because we will be hurtfully opposed in our ministry. Prayer reminds and strengthens us in God's loving care. Prayer pleads the grace of God that is sufficient in those moments to carry us through. Elymas was opposing them personally. Notice secondly also in verse 8 that Elymas was seeking to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. Opposition will come in the form of unbelievers trying to turn those who are seeking the Lord away from following. Opposers will try to lure them away by tempting them with the world's goods or the world's trash as it really is. Opposers will tempt them with the delights of the eyes and the flesh by openly mocking and deriding them for their simple-minded, old-fashioned faith. Opposers who get nowhere with the ministers themselves will soon and very quickly oppose the converts. So again, why is prayer so essential for gospel ministry? Because our enemies will constantly seek to undo whatever has been done in the lives of those seeking God, that God is drawing to himself. In verse 10, thirdly, Elymas was making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Opposition will come in the form of perverting the truth of the gospel. Elymas was perhaps denying key elements of the faith. We know that he was a Jew. And Elymas was perhaps denying Jesus' Messiahship, knowing and understanding the Old Testament books of the law, the prophets, and the writings, similar in many ways that Jews today do. Denying perhaps Jesus' deity and Messiahship. Elymas was perhaps suggesting other ways of approaching God, perhaps through sorcery and witchcraft, which he was accustomed to and using. This opposition came from a Jew who had turned to sorcery. He was one who had been born into a Jewish home. He likely had an understanding of the Old Testament books having been taught the scriptures in the synagogues, but he'd rejected the one true God of the Hebrews. And sadly, brothers and sisters, he is like so many others today who've been born into a godly Christian home, who've been raised in Sunday school and youth group, have sat under the sound of the Bible's teaching, but they have not pursued God by faith and repentance of sin. They've now turned aside to other pagan beliefs and practices I think I might have told you, I uh, did an apologetics class uh, last semester, and one of the things we were given to listen to was a fellow named, um, and here my stellar memory will let me down completely, uh, Bart Ehrman. It was a debate between Bart Ehrman and William Lane Craig. And Bart Ehrman started off in a godly home, came to faith in Christ, went to seminary, got his degree, was a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, a gospel minister, and he started studying some Old Testament texts or New Testament texts as part of his advanced degree. And before he knew it, he got himself way off and he abandoned and rejected the faith completely and now actively opposes the Christian gospel message. In some ways, he's just like this. Elymas now opposes the faith, the straight ways of the Lord. He who was a part of God's chosen people is now opposing God. So why again is prayer so essential to gospel ministry so that those who hear our message receive it by faith and embrace it with joyful, faithful, trusting repentance and do not instead slip back and away from the truth and buy into the devil's lies? And here it's just worth it to stop and issue a warning. 
Brothers and sisters, beware. Beware that you hear and receive and embrace the gospel message, lest you become like Elymas, who had the truth but did not receive it and instead became an enemy of the faith. Now listen to George read Deuteronomy 1. And Joshua and Caleb came back and they gave them the message. They told them about the land. They told them all they had to do was trust God and obey His word and carry on and they would know all the blessings of occupying that land. And you know what Moses' summation of what happened to him? He said, but you did not believe. That was their problem. Elymas knew the truth. He knew the straight ways of the Lord. That's why Paul says it to him. Why do you make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? He knew the truth, but he had not embraced it. He had not received it by faith and now was, was opposing the gospel. So how does Paul handle this opposition? How can we learn from Paul's example to handle the opposition that comes? Notice in verses 9 and 10 that Paul is filled with the Spirit. In other words, he's under the increasing influence of the Holy Spirit in his own life. And Paul, in submission to God's Spirit, resists the enemy's opposition. Kind of like James says in James 4 verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's exactly what's happening here. He recognized this man for who he truly is in character and identity. He's a son of the devil. What's that mean? It means he's walking in the devil's ways. He's an enemy of all righteousness, meaning he's an enemy of the gospel message. He's a liar full of deceit and fraud. Brothers and sisters, equipped with God's word, we must learn to recognize those who are in opposition to the gospel for who they truly are. And when opposition comes, we recognize it for what it truly is. It's coming from the enemy. Why is prayer and submission to the Holy Spirit and submission to God's Word so essential for gospel ministry? Because in part, it is to recognize those who are truly enemies of the faith, to not be deceived by those who look like and sound like and even act like those who are in the faith, but in reality are nothing like brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice also in verse 10, at the end, Paul's words to Elymas can be understood one of two ways. I read this passage for so many times, and I thought about him and thought, he's just letting him have it. And then I suddenly noticed in verse 10, look what it says. At the end, he says, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? You can read that like I did. Will you not stop making, straight, making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? In other words, he's given it to him in a rhetorical question. Or... Let's look at the other possibility. Perhaps he asked it as a question pleading for Elymas' repentance. Will you not cease making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? I thought to myself, he's just letting him have it. But you know what I think it's also possible? He was appealing to him for repentance. He was presenting the truth of the gospel to Elymas and calling him into submission to it. You think... But how could God save a person like that? Well, look who's talking. What was Saul doing before he got saved? Opposing the church. 
beating people up, throwing them in prison, probably killing a few, riding around a horseback trying to get more people. And he was doing all these things, opposing the gospel. And God came face to face with Paul and confronted him and saved him and changed him. And now he's out preaching the gospel. And I'm wondering, as I read the text, I wonder if Saul, Paul, didn't look at Elymas and think, could have been like him. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he directly identifies who he is. And then he asks that question. Notice also, you will be, that darkness thing, it will be for a time. In other words, not forever. And so as I see, I think to myself, you know, I think what's really happening here is Paul is pointing out who he is. He's pointing out what the way he's living, and he's actually calling him to repentance, and he's dealing with him to get him out of the way of Sergius Paulus, who so badly wants to hear the gospel, and, and eventually will come to faith, believing the teaching of the word of the Lord, not so much because of the miracle, and Elymas is dealt with. Opposition is handled and resisted by spirit-filled understanding and recognition of what is truly opposition. It's handled with a spirit-filled plea for repentance. And then in verse 11, Paul responds by turning him over to God. Paul pronounces this temporary judgment on him. The darkness he has embraced in his sorcery and witchcraft will now be made very real to him in physical darkness and blindness. Like I said a moment ago, it's only temporary for a time. There is a measure of grace in Paul's handling of Elymas. There is hope as we see the scene close that Elymas may have come to faith in Christ. You say, where is that in the Bible? It's not. I'm just saying that there is a possibility that he might have come to faith later on. We don't know. He simply walks off the scene. More often than we will ever know, One who seems so opposed to the gospel, such an enemy of the faith, was one on whom God had his hand and eye to turn and save for his glory. You think that's impossible? Go get a mirror and look at it. Because brother and sister, without God's grace, you're just the same. And Paul handled that opposition Brothers and sisters, to try and wrap all this up quickly. We are all called to a gospel ministry. Whether it's teaching a Sunday school class or leading youth group or raising kids at home or pastoring a church or serving as an elder or a deacon or going and serving in some local ministry or going overseas to be a missionary for the rest of your lives, we are all called to a gospel ministry. You say, I'm not an evangelist. Great. Take a pile of gospel tracts and just leave them wherever you go. Uh, my mother-in-law, you couldn't go out for lunch with my mother-in-law because everywhere she'd go, she'd have her handbag there. And as we were closing, she'd open her handbag and she'd pull out two or three gospel tracts and leave them on the table so that the waiter and the cleanup people would come on. They'd pick up these gospel tracts and she'd already be gone so they couldn't give them back. My mother-in-law would witness to a donkey if she thought there was a reasonable chance a donkey would get saved. We're not all like that. Some of us are very much afraid of that. But we put on a gospel track. We go out with the youth group and put Bibles and letterboxes, and we put them in. We put gospel tracks out in the letterboxes. We go into the Noble Park in the next month or so, when it gets warmer, we're going to go back to doing that. We're all involved in a gospel ministry. If you're raising your kids at home, 
You think, I'd love to be in some kind of ministry. Congratulations, God put you in one when he gave you little ones to look after. That's a gospel. That's a huge mission field. And you got a captive audience because they can't get away, right? That's a great ministry. But here in Acts, verse 13, we see a pattern, a model for ministry laid out before us. A gospel ministry, a faithful gospel ministry is one that is, first of all, devoted to prayer. It is one that is in submission to the Holy Spirit's leading. When Paul wanted to go one way, the Spirit said, no, go another way. And he didn't go to Asia or Bithynia, but he said he went over to Macedonia and the gospel spread up into Europe. A gospel ministry begins with family and friends at home. You wonder who's my mission field? At the breakfast table, look around. That's your mission field. As you drive down the street, your neighborhood, that's your mission field. The gospel ministry proclaims the biblical gospel. Brother and sister in Christ, do not be lured and swayed by the modern church movement that wants to strip away the gospel, to strip away the key elements of the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the judgment of God. Nobody wants to hear about hell. We had some friends visiting with us here. Drove him home in our, my car. He looked at me and he said, Nelson, you mentioned hell from the pulpit. And I said, well, yeah, that's part of the gospel story. And he just looked at me with, it, with just sort of this amazement. It might have been my bad driving, I don't know. But he was looking with amazement all the same. But he mentioned hell. Yeah, hell is part of the gospel story. God's judgment and God's wrath. Don't be swayed, brothers and sisters, into watering down and stripping out the power of the gospel in its full content. A gospel ministry trains the next generation and a gospel ministry prayerfully and spiritually recognizes and resists the opposition that comes. Never losing sight of the fact that God died for that person too. So what does all this demand of us? a devotion to prayer, a submission to the Spirit's leading, a humility before God and others, a faithfulness to the Word of God and the Gospel. We have a great Savior who accomplished a great salvation for us. We're going to sing a song before we close in prayer. It's... uh, lost the words to it. It's facing a task unfinished. Brady, can you put verse one up for me, please? Up on the screen. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. That's prayer. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. Next slide. We here rejoice to know thee. Renew before thy throne. A solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Would you stand with